Pastor Xavier Reese on meditating on the simple truths of God's Word. A lot of what we meditate upon is determined by what it is that we take in. It's like computers today, garbage in, garbage out. What are you putting in? Who are you fellowshiping with? More with godly people or ungodly people? What kind of things are you looking at? Things that build you up in the Lord or things that kind of entice your flesh? And then concentrate and try to remember what is it that contemplates your thoughts most of the day? And you've got your answer. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Psalm 1 offers assurance that the righteous man knows how to discern the counsel of the ungodly. Unfortunately, many fail at this point by not bearing in mind whether the source we might seek guidance from is in fact godly or ungodly. It's all too easy when we hear advice or theories and agree or disagree without considering, is this godly counsel? Let's join Pastor Xavier with more on the importance of conforming to the righteousness of God as he draws out this first critical simple truth in a verse-by-verse study series of the Psalms. Let's listen. Here in Psalm 1, God begins right off to show the contrast between the godly and the ungodly. It is believed that Psalm 1 is the introduction to the entire Psalter, or the entire amount of Psalms that we have, the book. Remember the first division is Psalm 1 to 41, and they're all ascribed to David in the first book, except for Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 10, and Psalm 33, which in themselves also they have no title. But you know that Psalm 1 is a contrast between the godly and the ungodly, And again, that sets the stage for a lot of the dealings with the Psalms, a lot of the prayers of the individuals who cry out to God, a lot of the situations that they're in. It is God fighting for His people and those who do not know God fighting against God and the people of God. And so we see the contrast in this first Psalm. From verses 1 through 3, you have the godly. Verses 4 through 6, you have the ungodly. There's a very simple division of the psalm. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seed of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Here you have the beginning of God's word in the Psalms about the godly. And pretty much throughout the Psalm, you see this a principle. You see this a pattern. The word blessed is the word happy. The Septuagint uses the Greek translation that is equivalent to the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. Happy is the man. And we see right off the bat that the man is happy as the man who walks with God. The man who does not walk apart from God. Jesus spoke about the Beatitudes, blessed are are the poor, blessed are the meek. And yet, in that culture he was speaking about, that was not a favorable thing. But Jesus was speaking about spiritual happiness. The problem with our world today, and it always has been, is that we're seeking for happiness, which is very conditional. It's based upon what we have, how we feel, and who we know. And therefore, when our feelings go, and the people go, and the things disappear, we become unhappy. 
You go buy a new car, you're excited, you're happy. You drive out and somebody smashes into it, you're not so happy. Or you drive it off and you park it in the parking lot and you come out and it's one day old and somebody's keyed it. Or somebody's opened their door and put a big ding in it. You're not very happy. But the happiness that he's talking about here is that spiritual happiness that deals with your relationship with God. That obedience, that walk circumspectly as Paul tells the Ephesians. Notice that there's a progression. Walk, stand, sit. It is given in the negative. Now, today our psychologists, even Christian psychologists, get down on us for being negative. I challenge you, just take any book of the Bible and go through one book and find out how often God is negative and how often He is positive. I bet you He's more negative than positive. But His negatives always imply positive results. And so there's a big difference. It says, not walk. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Walking speaks of fellowship. Walking speaks of progress. The godly man does not come alongside the counsel of the ungodly. He does not take advice or take heed to their devices, nor does he try to walk in their step. He's totally separate. He lives in the world, but he's not of the world. Jesus said that. One of the dangers of Christianity has been in the past, and it still is today, that we feel that God has called us to be isolated, when in fact he's called us to be insulated. Be in the world. Affect the world. Don't get off somewhere and hide. The world's going to hell. And the world needs Christians who have a message, a message of love, a message of truth, a message of knowledge, where you're going. The world doesn't know where it's going. It really doesn't. And so he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. Standing speaks of, of, of contemplating. You know, you're walking with somebody and all of a sudden, say, hey, come here, and you stand and you give more heed. You're kind of being enticed. You're being sucked in. The godly man sees the snare. He, he resists the enemy and he draws nigh to God. He knows that God will never allow him to be tested more than he's able. But with every testing, show a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And yet there are fiery trials that come into our lives. Difficult ones at times. And yet he's giving the picture of the godly man here. He continues in the negative, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, by the time you're sitting, you've bought it hook, line, and sinker. There's a progression in everything you do. So, you know, we look at some things, we read some things, we hear some things, we say, oh, I would never do that. How could he? One step at a time. <laughs> That's how. When a man finally comes to his wife and says, um, I'm leaving you. I've got this other woman I've been seeing. Or the other way around. It didn't happen that morning. It's been a process of time and of walking, of standing, of sitting. And all of a sudden, you can't take it no more, but it's been going on for quite a while. And it's that grieving, it's that turning your back upon the conviction of God and the checking of the Holy Spirit. David walked out to his balcony and he looked at Bathsheba. She was bathing nude. Now, he could have just walked in. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit checked him. Then he walked in and he asked the servant, um, whose wife is that? He says, it's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Second check. And there were many other checks, but he rejected all of them. Where did he end up? In bed with Bathsheba. Did it end there? No. He had to plot to murder her, her husband. Did it end there? No. He walked the whole year without fellowship with God. Until God sent Nathan the prophet and gave him that parable. And David was enraged. And he says, David, you're the man. If you think yourself above sin, gross sin, terrible sin, treacherous sin, 
then you haven't studied the scriptures and you haven't studied the people of God. They're people of flesh and bone. They're people like you and I. And they're people who obeyed God or disobeyed God. And we need to pay heed to the progression here. Walking, standing, sitting. Who does he sit with? He does not sit with the scornful. Those who mock at God. You know, it's a terrible place to be when you're a Christian and you've got one foot in the church and one in the world. Because you can kind of have all the jargon for the people in the church and then you're still with your friends and when they start poking fun at you or Christianity, you kind of just, oh, you kind of flow with You feel kind of bad, but you're kind of just able to kind of just go along with it. It's an awesome feeling. And yet even there, God is checking us. And so first the negative of his conduct, which is to bring about positive results. But secondly, in verse 2, we get the positive things he does do. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The word but is a strong contrast. His delight, his desire, where he's at. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness, therefore he'll be filled, as Jesus said. The psalmist says, wherewithal will a young man cleanse his ways? He says, in my heart have I hid thy word that I might not sin against thee. Joshua 1.8 says, meditate upon the word day and night. Then you shall be prosperous and have good success. But we always interpret prosperous and good success to be monetary, money, finances, material. The scripture is not speaking about that. It's speaking about spiritual prosperity, walking with God, joyful, happy, knowing what life's all about, knowing that you're pleasing Him. That's the context. And so he delights in the law of the Lord. And in that law does he meditate day and night. You see, it's nice to study the Word. I'm glad we have the opportunity to go through the Word. But if what we study from week to week does not become something of meditation in your life, if you do not take God's word and say, Lord, you show me what you mean by this verse. You show me what you meant by that lesson this morning. And meditate upon it. It's like a stew. You let it simmer. Let it just sit there and, and have the Holy Spirit minister to you. How does that apply to your life? How does that affect your life? Meditation on God's word. What, what is going on through your BB brain when it's a neutral? During the day, what preoccupies most of your thinking in silence? God's word, his will, his purpose, or carnality? Or you? It's a conflict. And we have to purposely meditate. We have to purposely cultivate. Because if we don't, our minds just go haywire. A lot of what we meditate upon is determined by what it is that we take in. It's like computers today, garbage in, garbage out. What are you putting in? Who are you fellowshipping with? More with godly people or ungodly people? What kind of things are you looking at? Things that build you up in the Lord or things that kind of entice your flesh? And then concentrate and try to remember what is it that contemplates your thoughts most of the day? And you've got your answer. And our world caters to that. You don't have to go very far, just get in your car and look at the first billboard. Advertisement on TV. And you have to put on the mind of Christ and you have to diligently and purposely follow God. Because Satan's alive. Your flesh is just as alive and the world will eat you up. And myself. And you've got to make a choice and so do I. And it is a choice. Day and night. Why? Because there's safety in day and night. Because Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. He doesn't take any time off. I mean, we need to study the enemy a little more because he's smart. And verse 3 says, He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. 
This is the result. A tree that's planted by the rivers of water, it's talking about that irrigation canal artificially is made. Its roots are deep. It just reaches down, gets the nutrients, the water. The roots go down deep so it's stable when the rough times come, the wind. Because it's rooted, it's grounded. That was the terms that Paul uses in Ephesians. It's alive. Why? To bring forth fruit in its season. God will use you. God desires to use you and myself. In His time, in His way, meanwhile, you just get nourished. Pray, study, be open, be flexible, be available. And in your time, in His time, the fruit will come. The doors will open, opportunity for you to share your faith. The doors will open for people to ask questions. But you've got to make yourself available. And so... Like that tree that brings fruit. If a tree doesn't bring fruit, it's good for nothing. Jesus says, hey, if this, uh, he gave the parable of the, of the fig tree. The guy says, if it doesn't bring fruit, hey, cut it down. He cursed the fig tree. You see, trees are supposed to bring fruit so that people can eat and benefit from them. We're trees. We are to be a blessing and a benefit to the people in the world. We're not to be isolated, as I said. He says, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he doeth shall prosper. The leaf, not withering, speaks of Freshness. I hear sometimes Christians saying, you know, I just don't get as much out of the Word as I used to. That's a worse commentary on you than it is the Bible. Because God's the same, the Word's the same. And so it happens, we get excited and we get saved and time goes on and other rivals come to our side and we start compromising, we start looking somewhere else and we start thinking, well, you know, I'm born again and I, you know, I've got it together and it's not bad to do that. And we start deceiving ourselves. We deceive ourselves, sin deceives us, and Satan deceives us. You've got to stay in love with Jesus, man. I've seen so many people. I, I, I just stop and think when we were just first in the Lord in the early 70s, and so many young kids and people that came to the Lord, and, um, you know, where are they? Some of them are in another fellowship, but so many just, um, you know, say, well, yeah, I was into that, but, you know, you know, they got ripped off. And rivals will come. You will be tested. Whatever he does shall prosper spiritually because God is guiding him. Not because he's a self-made man. Today you get the message of being successful. You know, these guys TV, they'll guarantee you, they'll make you successful. Give you all these easy steps. The only reason they're rich is because everybody's paying them money to follow the course. And so God is speaking about that prosperity because he's the one that's guiding. And if he guides, then it's evident. People are getting saved. People are growing. People's lives are being turned around. Families are being put together. People are getting answers. And that's exciting. And you don't have to strive to attain. Because if you do, then you have to strive to maintain. And that gets awfully tiresome. Just let God take care of it. Meditate on the Word day and night. Now he contrasts the ungodly. The ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly, not so. Not so what? They don't prosper. They're not fresh. They're not nurtured. They don't meditate on God's Word. They don't delight in God's Word. They're like the shaft, empty, no substance to them. Like the man that is on the threshing floor on top of the hill, and he takes his pitchfork and he gets that wee shaft, he throws it up in the air, and the wind comes by, and all the shaft is just like the shell that just gets blown away. The wheat falls to the ground. It's got substance. The wicked are like that, you know. They come and go, get rich quick. Let's party. 
Let's go for it. Next year you find out they're dead, they're in jail, they're divorced. I mean, their life is just destroyed. I mean, I look at my own friends who I hung out with and I, it's tragic. And yet, why not I? God's grace. God's grace, that's all. Not because I'm any better. Just God's grace. So the wind drives them away and therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. In other words, they can't stand before God to be judged. You know, people say all the time I hear, well, you know, when I'll stand that day, God will judge me and, you know, he'll weigh my goods and my bads. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. No man can stand before God in judgment unless they're in Christ Jesus because no man is perfect. And if you're not perfect, then you lost because God is holy and you're sinful. And the only way you can stand before God in judgment is if you're a Christian because then all your sins have been put upon Jesus and He has paid for them. But if there's not a lamb to take your sin, the Lamb of God, then what is the basis of your even approaching God or your covering of your sin? Repentance, affliction, works, morality, they all strike out. You must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. And so the wicked, the ungodly, will never stand before the judgment of God. Um, he will only stand before the white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And the books will be opened. They will be judged out of the books. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. How can a God send people for all eternity in torment? Because He's holy. And because He's warned. And He's given plenty of time for people to repent. He's just. He's holy. When He judges, man, you're going to say, Right on, Lord. Nobody's going to be able to say, Lord, you don't understand. I mean, you know, I've got some other information. No. He's going to know it all. He knows everything. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. He sees, he hears, he knows absolutely everything. Now, Psalm 2. It's a royal psalm, meaning it's messianic. It's prophetic of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It really introduces the first book of the first 41 because the first psalm is the introductory to the whole thing. Psalm 2 has a primary application, a local application to the king, be it David or Solomon, we're not sure, but to the king who God has established in that day. Secondly, it has an application, as I said, to Christ the Messiah, prophetic. It is quoted five times in the New Testament in Matthew and Acts and Hebrews. It's a favorite psalm. But there's a third application also as we look at Psalm 2, and that is a universal rebellion of man against God and all that God stands for. Most people, if you walk out in the street and you ask them, you know, do you hate God? They'll say, no. Do you believe in God? Yeah. But get down to real specifics. Are you born again? Have you repented of your sins? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as being God? And they get real angry. Real angry. And so it has a threefold application. In the first three verses, we have the revolt of the nations. Verses 4 through 6, the futility of that revolt. Verses 7 through 9, God's victory over them. And verses 10 through 12, the application. Let's go through it. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Why do the nations rage? The word rage there is band together. The Gentile nations, all those who do not know God at this time, only the Jews knew God. They had a covenant with Him. And God basically sees the nations in revolt against Him. It starts as early 
as Adam. Then you have the Tower of Babel. Then you have Noah. And you can continue from there. It says that the people plot a vain thing. Empty, futile. He describes the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers counsel together, and they're against the Lord's, Yahweh, against His anointed. The reference to the anointed could first of all be for the king who was reigning at that time, possibly David. But secondly, it's against the anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is to come. They will stand in the valley of Megiddo. Revelation 19 tells us that they will be there all unified together to try to stop Jesus from setting up the kingdom a thousand years. We will be coming back with him. Interesting that he says, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. See, man does not want to be controlled by God. Man wants to lead his own life and do his own thing. He doesn't want to be submissive to God. He wants to be his own God. The response to that rebellion is in verse 4. He says, he who sits on the heavens shall laugh. Kind of a beautiful picture of huh? these guys here. They are little lands on earth going up saying like this. This guy sits in the heavens and he laughs. In other words, the attempt is so stupid. It's like, you know, a five-year-old kid's going to be threatening a 35-year-old man. And that doesn't even compare to how ludicrous it is. And he laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. God wiped out many armies just by a word of his mouth. The Egyptian army, he parted the Red Sea, then he allowed it to come together on them. God destroyed many of Israel's enemies. They turned their swords against themselves. He sent plagues, pestilence. Man is no match for God. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill on Zion. Verse 6 says, The king who was then reigning, but second of all, the Messiah who was to come. It has a twofold application, the psalm. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, the Jehovah Witness do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe that he is a created angel. The Mormons do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe that he's half-brother half to Satan. And Adam was glorified to be God, and he's the one that has sex with Mary. So they've got a real screwy theology. And they've got problems when you come against them and you tell them that Jesus Christ is God. Here very clearly it says that his son was begotten. Begotten as a man, yet he was from all eternity, Micah tells us. From everlasting to everlasting. Before Abraham was, I am. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God, who at different times and different manners spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His dear Son. Philippians 2, 5 and 7 says that he didn't think it robbery to empty himself of his glory and take on the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8 says, to condemn and put sin to death in the flesh. But he was sinless. And so, today I have begotten you. You find that quote in Hebrews. God calls a son God. The 
the Son calls a Father God. Pastor Xavier Reese, illustrating the seriousness of God's righteousness with a verse-by-verse study of Psalms chapter 1 today. And you can hear this message again, if you like, online anytime by selecting today's date under the radio tab at calvarychapelpasadena.com. But you can also request your own CD copy of this study from a verse-by-verse study series of the book of Psalms. Today's message is simply titled Psalms chapters 1 through 5 and is available for only $4. And you'll be receiving the entire full-length message as it was originally presented. So the title to ask for once again is Psalms chapters 1 through 5. Or you can always just mention today's date when you write Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Again, that's Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's helpful when you mention the call letters of this station when you contact us. And then join us for more Simple Truths from the Book of Psalms, right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com